In my opinion, Ayn Rand's book titled Atlas Shrugged is one of the most principled macroeconomic and political stories of all time, and it should be required reading before going to college. And in that book, the world's most productive and talented entrepreneurs, they're disappearing because the culture has essentially determined that individual success is morally incompatible with collective equality. And the ideas and arguments around this go back hundreds of years. And if you think that there's settled disputes here in America, well, think again. Just this week, freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez quite literally stated in her disapproval of the morality of a system which allows for billionaires to exist. And at the same time, you don't have to search very far to hear a capitalist ask about the last time that the federal government actually provided a way for people to keep more of the money that they had earned. I can think of a hundred topics more interesting than the tax code or politics, and this podcast is fundamentally about real estate. But taxes and politics are forces that impact how real estate gets developed, how jobs get created, and how communities can prosper. Taxes are inherently political because it gives voice to the people who didn't take risk about how to spend money of those who did. There's so many gives and takes, risks and rewards, and navigating the ship that should be bound for profits through the murky waters of ego and through the filter of what used to be known as journalism makes this adventurous entrepreneurial soul consider the appeal of being a desk jockey as a better alternative than being a successful real estate developer. And when the map that we're given comes from the civic leaders who've never built a building, opened a business, or served a customer, what could possibly go wrong? I don't know. Maybe everything. And if you're looking for that lighthouse of hope that our free market has not fallen completely into the hands of the communist, then look to the Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2018. I need to pause here and say I'd be remiss if I didn't give some kudos to the professionalism and focus on customer service and business growth that many in the city and county governments around Knoxville offer. You know, there's a great deal of leadership there that comes from the private sector, and when they're called the services done, they return, leaving the community in a better place than they had found it. The Knoxville Chamber hosted a very well-attended event about Opportunity Zones, a component of that tax bill that this podcast is going to explore. But afterwards, one of the fellow attendees says to me, seems to me like Opportunity Zones are just another loophole for the rich people to get richer. This person's no dummy. They actually do quite a bit of business to help other businesses succeed, and I respect them a great deal. But I'm not sure that they're the kind of altruistic person that reads things like current affairs magazine that claims that it's immoral to be rich, quote, because every dollar you have is a dollar you're not giving to somebody else. The decision to retain wealth is a decision to deprive others, end quote. If you listen to this podcast, you're likely the kind of person to ask how the dollar that you keep can be risked knowing that you might lose that entire dollar and in the process can materialize $2 for someone to get a much needed job to give a storefront a much-needed upgrade, or to give a city a new business to attract new visitors and serve its citizens. You know, regardless of your politics, job title, or location, this interview that we're about to do with Alex Flashbart, CEO of Opportunity Alabama, it's going to educate you about the risks and the benefits of Opportunity Zones. So, without any further ado, it's time to... Get in the zone! Hey, Alex. Hey, how are you? Great, man. All right. So uh, take us on a quick journey of what did you do before and how did that prepare you for your current role? Sure. I am a former tax attorney. Uh, I am no longer accounting for every six minutes of my life, which is wonderful. Uh, 
my specialty area was in uh, tax credit work primarily, so I did a lot of uh, finding money under rocks for people uh, who were working on larger, more complicated deals, uh, particularly in sort of distressed communities across the state of Alabama and across the southeast. I happened to be looking for additional money under rocks in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act when it got uh, uploaded to the, uh, the, the, the Senate uh, Finance Committee's website back in November 2017 and stumbled across opportunity zones in the bill, in the, in the first draft of the bill. So I got very excited about the concept, uh, you know, unlike new markets tax credits, unlike low income housing tax credits, historic tax credits, other programs. So that if we could mount an effort to coordinate the provision of capital to places that were ultimately designated as opportunity zones, uh, we would have a really powerful tool that we could start to use for good and to ensure that capital got to the places that really didn't need it. Our goal is to build an ecosystem around the Opportunity Zone concept that engages four key stakeholder groups on a statewide basis. Uh, those four groups are you know, community sponsors, namely uh, you know, uh, local economic development folks, local elected officials, chambers of commerce. Project sponsors uh, is the next big group. Uh, those are primarily real estate developers right now and others that have uh, projects that need funding. Our next group of folks that we're trying to get engaged in the ecosystem are investors. And then at the local level, uh, you know, the last group of supporters we're trying to get engaged are folks like, uh, you know, community banks, uh, university, colleges and universities, uh, the lo uh, local community foundations and others who can in some way, uh, accountants, attorneys, people who can support the broader creation of an ecosystem around this opportunity of concept. And so the Economic Innovation Group estimates that there's as much as $6 trillion in gains that could be invested into Opportunity Zones and more than 8,700 Opportunity Zones around the country that are going to benefit. And your focus obviously is in Alabama, but I first saw you speak here in Tennessee, so you're active in the Southeast. Help me understand, one, a little bit more of your business model, and two, your ability to serve people outside of Alabama. One, I, I will say that the reason that you and I ran into each other in Tennessee was because uh, I owed a favor uh, to, to Lamont, uh, who works for the uh, Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development. Can Alex Bloxbart slash Opportunity Alabama work with you if you're a project sponsor that's somewhere that's not Alabama? No. Now, if you're an investor who's anywhere in the U.S., or if you're a developer who's anywhere in the U.S. and you want to come to Alabama, either to put money or to work on projects, you know, the, the, the ecosystem is, is yours to taking. Uh, some of your listeners might be in a position similar to mine or might be, you know, working with folks, you know, at the, at the local level trying to figure out how we in Indiana or in Montana uh, or in Florida or somewhere else can respond to this new opportunity those programs. And so my hope is that something, some very small kernel of what I have to say can help to create the next opportunity Alabama, no matter where you are, or at the very least, help you build a local ecosystem in your community. So define what an opportunity zone is, and the follow-up to that would be, what's the benefit of investing into an opportunity zone as an investor? An opportunity zone is a geographically defined area uh, by census tract. So there's 8,700 of these things across the U.S. Uh, they are low to moderate income communities. At least 95% of them are low to moderate income. They were designated by governors uh, back during the early part of 2018, uh, and different states use very different criteria to sort of do their selection process. Uh, a lot of downtowns got included. Uh, a lot of industrial sites got included. Uh, a lot of interstate exits and other places where there's strong potential for development got included. There are a lot of places that are in 
turning areas that are in developable areas. Um, and so that's, a, that's an exciting thing, um, and, and our hope is the capital finds the places where it's sort of needed the most. Which gets us to the second part of your question, you know, how, how does this program benefit investors? Think about kind of two buckets of benefit, a front-end bucket and a back-end bucket if you're an investor. If you're an investor in this program, you must have capital gains. Uh, if you've got that gain event, then you've got to go find or create an opportunity fund. Really, it sounds like something that someone on Wall Street needs to manage for you, but it's actually not. Are there people on Wall Street managing opportunity funds? 100% yes. But can you create, you know, hire a lawyer, hire an accountant, create your own to go invest in one project you want to go do? Absolutely the latter as well. Okay, so there's a very wide range of potential models. But there's two big benefits. One on the front side, one on the back side. The front side benefit is a deferral of the capital gains taxes. You get the deferral of the capital gains tax you would have otherwise owed on your investment. And if you invest fast enough, e.g. before the end of 2019, you will get a 15% discount when you pay your tax bill in 2026. Uh, if you missed the 2019 window, but you're in before 2021, you'll get a 10% discount on your tax bill when you pay it in 2020. So the backside benefit is, if I hold my investment in one of these opportunity funds that goes and invest in either one project or a dozen projects across the U.S., then I can, if I if I want to, sell that project off 10 years down the road or later and not pay any capital gains tax at all on the appreciation of my investment in that project. So if, let's say, I put a million dollars into the opportunity fund, well, you know, I would have otherwise, you know, one full example, would have otherwise owed 20% capital gains tax on that million dollars. So I would have otherwise owed 200 grand. Well, on the front end, I get to defer paying that 200 grand until 2026. I get to pay 30 grand less when I pay it in 2026. And if my million dollar investment appreciates to, let's say, $3 million, as long as I'm in for a 10 year period or longer, that $2 million worth of appreciation totally tax free. So if I've got a half million dollars of capital gain that I need to place somewhere, maybe I could do that in a 1031 exchange. I could also, in theory, do a 1031 exchange inside an opportunity zone. Am I able to compound the benefits of those two programs? Uh, it, 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 it gets tricky. So I would suggest thinking about this as an either or choice on the front end. If you go the 1031 route, well, you know the benefits there, they're traditional. You never have to pay your capital gains tax as long as you continue to roll with that 1031 structure. But you're also then locked into that 1031 structure, and you got to keep rolling and rolling and rolling basically forever. Uh, with the opportunity fund, well, it's a lot more painful on the front end because you will have to pay that tax bill on whatever gain you put into the fund down the road. Uh, now, you get to defer it for a little bit, and you pay a little bit less, but you will have to pay your taxes. The beauty of the opportunity fund model is that if you're waiting for 10 years or longer, if your capital is really patient, really you know there to wait for this community to turn around and become a thriving place. If, if that's the case, then you don't have to pay, then you get to get out, totally exit the loop, you know, get out of the cycle, not have to pay capital gains tax on that appreciation and then go do whatever you want to with your dollars, uh, which is certainly not an option that you have in the 1031 model. Where are the opportunity zones and will they continue to create more opportunity zones? So I would encourage you to go to, you referenced earlier, Economic Innovation Group. Uh, they've got bunch of great resources on this topic, including a really nice national map. So you can see where the 8,700 are. Again, most of them probably, it, it, it's a pretty even mix between urban 
uh, suburban and rural, probably about a third, a third, and a third on a national basis, with a little bit of a lean towards urban. Uh, but uh, you can really find, I mean, you know, here in Alabama, for example, and then this is true in most states, every county has at least one opportunity. Uh, so there's probably one in your backyard if you hop on the map and look. Um, and uh, there, there will not be any new ones created uh, unless there is literally an act of Congress to create them. So the zones got set back in April and May of last year. They are now set in stone. Uh, and and it, it, it quite literally will take an act of Congress to move them at this point. Well, that's encouraging because they're getting a lot of stuff done right now. <laughs> Precisely. And, and, and who knows? Down the road, if this is a hugely successful program, I think there could be any number of statutory changes that could occur. Right? I mean, you know, we could see that 2026 tax payment deadline get kicked out for a second round of opportunities on investment. We could see some zone realignment. Any number of statutory tweaks could occur with this program, but it will require us collectively to demonstrate that this thing is actually working and working in the way that it was intended, which is to, you know, uplift communities that have historically lacked access to capital, right? So not just show that a whole bunch of good real estate development projects got done and made developers some money, but there was some community benefit too. Some questions that I've seen circulate have to do with businesses inside of opportunity zones as opposed to property, like business assets. Can you shed some light on that topic for me? Everyone wanted this to be a tool that funded businesses on Main Street, created Real, real job growth in, in, in distressed communities, right? Uh, and so, and that's where the, you know, the, the real estate side doesn't create the job. It's the active business side that creates the job. And so, you know, the, the, the statute was written pretty liberally to be able to fund businesses that locate in low-income communities. As long as most of your stuff as a business, your tangible property is located in one of these low-income areas, and as long as that's where you're doing your business, in theory, under the statute, you should be okay. Now, of course, there's a number of different uh, little rabbit holes we go down. We don't have time to go down those. But the problem, the main principal problem right now with, with investing in active businesses is not the statute, it's the regulation. So the first tranche of regulations that came out on October 19th of last year uh, put a pretty serious collar around where businesses can get their revenue from. There's a requirement in the statute that 50% of your, uh, uh, of your income must come from the active conduct of your business in the opportunity zone. And no one's entirely sure what that means. They're not sure if it means I've just got to have my people doing business in the zone and that, that's fine, or if it means that I've got to be able to trace every dollar of income that I make back to some actual activity that I did in the zone as opposed to some ad that I put on Amazon or some sale that I made to someone in, in, in you know, some far corner of the world. So that's really the problem right now. It's, it's that there's so much investor uncertainty around what the framework is going to look like on the active business investment side that the investor community has been skittish about making those investments. Now, is it possible for certain business categories? Sure. Franchises, we're seeing some movement in. Uh, for some reason, hydroponic gardening, uh, we're seeing a lot of movement in. I've seen a few of those projects. Uh, some limited industrial, I think, works with this. but. By and large, it's been really hard to try to figure this out for active businesses at this point. Not to say that people haven't tried, but it's been hard. So if there's a retail development that's new inside an opportunity zone, there's a benefit not just for the developer, but also for potentially the franchisor, the franchisee, and then also the community. That's correct. Um, In our business, we can't have a conversation without talking about risks, and it seems that it's important to point out that there's got to be a capital gain and these incentives are directed towards areas where there, there hasn't been a lot of economic growth already. So we're trying to make a turnaround here, an incentive to offset some risk, but we've got to talk about those risks. 
Are there any others beyond the fact that the property just may not have or realize a capital gain that people should know about? Every investor should approach one of these opportunities on investments as they would any other investment. In fact, even more so because I mean, there is no downside protection for you if one of these deals goes bad, right? The only real benefit, the only real benefit that you get is that, uh, is that, that deferral and then reduction on the front end of your capital gains tax liability. On the back end, all the benefit accrues to you if the product depreciates. And if it doesn't appreciate, then, you know, you get no benefit, right? So this is not like a tax credit program where there's some baked-in level of benefit for you. Uh, and, and that's what we're, we're really seeing investors, at least the good ones, underwrite these deals exactly as they would a normal deal and make investments exactly as they normally would. Maybe with a little, and, and, and really what we're seeing is, you know, people aren't doing the crazy risky projects in, in the craziest, most distressed parts of the country yet, unless there's credit support, which gets to how you as a community can get engaged in supporting, you know, kind of development in the places where you really want to see it. But what it is doing is pushing projects in secondary and tertiary markets that are not just Atlanta and Miami and Denver towards the front of national capital investors, uh, you know, sort of, you know, uh, review stacks, which has been really nice and helpful for states like Mississippi or or, or, or Alabama or, or Tennessee or Arkansas, places in the southeast. I heard someone else say that all taxes are political, and um, I have a a low appetite for being able to talk politics right now. But when I've heard discussions around opportunity zones, some of the uh, less enthusiastic responses I've heard people say, hey, this is just an opportunity for wealthy people to be able to make more money. Philosophically, can you address that and, and how this is beneficial to those communities that otherwise wouldn't receive the investment? Sure. So, I, I mean, first of all, any private market incentive is going to make someone richer. I mean, that's the whole point of the incentive process, right? But I think an incentive is, is used to steer economic activity in a way that wouldn't naturally go absent the incentive. And so that's, I think, exactly what you're starting to see so far with this program. And to ensure that communities do receive the net benefit and, and, and the projects get done that really need to get done, I think that more communities need to start looking at a model where, you know, you've got a central clearinghouse project. That, that, that's happening, that, where that clearinghouse sort of arranged around an idea of community benefit. Uh, that's really what we're doing with Opportunity Alabama. I mean, we're kind of the statewide pipeline, both on the project side and on the investor side. And we, as a 501c3, have a strong community impact lens. And so we want to be able to show that every project we take in the pipeline, even if it doesn't have a strong impact on the front end, uh, that, that they're willing to work with us to either you know pay impact fees, or create uh, positions for low-skilled folks uh, that pay a living wage, or willing to have internal promotion policies or hire policies, or willing to employ minority contractors, all the things that really can make a strong difference for a community, we're encouraging our projects to do in exchange for access to capital. Um, same on the, on, the, on the investor side. We're asking them to disclose their investments to us on an aggregate basis so that we understand where the investment dollars are flowing to this program, and we can ensure that that, that benefit really is getting distributed evenly so that we can get projects up the top of the stack that, you know, might not otherwise be there. So that, I think, unless you've got some kind of an actor that's really marshalling around this program, then, yeah, I, I think there is potential for this to benefit people that, that you know, are, are, we're already going to do a deal in the first place. So that, I guess that'd be my challenge to your listeners would be to figure out what that structure looks like in your community 
and how you can take this incredible, open-ended, wonderful incentive that could be used to, for example, create a local vesting movement in your community around really cool, high-impact projects and turn it into that as opposed to just letting the market ride, you know, ride with it where, where it will. Because we all know that capital follows the path of least resistance unless there's someone out there you know, kind of digging the channels to steer it towards, towards where it needs to go. Yeah. Yeah, and I really also like the idea of the just the sheer facts that, one, this was a bipartisan effort. This wasn't, uh, you know, this scheme to create cash, you know, for people who already have cash. Oh, but sure. but but the, the capital is at risk, right? There's no guarantee that if someone reinvests their gains into some underperforming area that it's going to generate a return. It's just that their their risk is potentially offset with this incentive and the community gets something that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten in the meantime. Exactly. And I think you see strong actors that are out there in this space right now that wouldn't otherwise be there absent this incentive. I mean, PNC Bank's got a national opportunity fund that's looking specifically at, at distressed areas for investment. Enterprise Community Partners is another one, right? I mean, there's all these sort of these, these impact-based banks, third parties, you know, housing and investors. There's a lot of folks that are trying to use this program to really drive capital into places that have, that have, that have never seen it before, right? Uh, and that, that's incredibly exciting to see. And I do think that, you know, I mean, again, Tim Scott and Cory Booker were the bipartisan champions of this thing. There's still very strong bipartisan support for this. And what it's going to take is all of us in the community, in the field, ensuring that that, that, that we're responding adequately to, to, the, to the gauntlet that's been thrown, which is, can you find us great projects for people to invest in, and can you come up with the deal stacks that are necessary to ensure that capital feels comfortable enough to, to go into your area? On one technical level, is it possible that one fund can be applied to multiple parcels, or is it a one-to-one ratio? No, you can have a multi-asset fund, uh, and you can have a single-asset fund, either way. Can there be multiple funds involved on a single project? Absolutely. Uh, now, <laughs> query whether a project sponsor is going to want to pay multiple legal bills and multiple underwriting fees and everything else, but, but sure, you can have as many funds as you want to engage in the project. So someone's got some capital, and they're attracted to what they're hearing. What kind of team do they need to have around them to be able to take the uh, next steps forward? So a uh, good accountant and a good lawyer. Those are the first two. And you got to make sure that those folks know exactly what they're doing and have experience in the opportunity zone space. Uh, and, and if that's true, as long as you got a good accountant and a good lawyer, if you have the game, you can, and, you can figure out kind of where you want to go with it. Now the question is going to be for you is whether you have access to a pipeline of projects. Mm-hmm. Where I would encourage you to reach out to, if you, if you don't, you know, reach out to your local community because many efforts like ours are popping up all over the country where folks are actively out there looking for capital for high-impact projects. So if you can't find someone there locally, then uh, I would encourage you to, to start asking questions. And, and, you know, maybe your gain event can be the nucleus of a little local Opportunity Zone funding ecosystem. If there was one thing that you wanted brokers like myself to know about Opportunity Zones, what would that be? Knowing that this is something that should go onto all of your marketing documents going forward. You don't need to know the ins and outs of this incentive uh, and exactly how it works, but you need to know that this is something that could theoretically get projects, get, get, get property off the shelf faster. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 it might be good to start concentrating your, your effort in these areas. But twin that, though, with 
finding the local organizing movement because the brokers are on the front lines of the project development side. I mean, y'all are the supply side of this equation. And so if the community organizing movement does not know you or understand what you have in the pipeline, then it, it, it could present a problem, right? I mean, it, it, it's going to make your local organizing movement a lot harder to get off the ground. Whereas if you're engaged from the start, it, it really incredible things could happen. And what about from someone that may be city council or government official, what's the one thing or most important thing that they need to know right now about Opportunity Zones? They need to start getting a plan together. Uh, and then they need to start looking at best practices, exemplars. Uh, Council of Development Finance Agencies has a great resource page on this. Uh, you can look at our model. You can look at what Colorado's doing, Maryland's doing, uh, City of Birmingham's doing, uh, Cleveland is doing some interesting things, Erie, Pennsylvania, Stockton, California. All of these are great resources for you to check out. Um, but, but, but having a plan really quickly, because, again, 2019 is a big year for this program because that's when you start to see diminishing uh, incentive thresholds for, for, for using this program. So. And just to recap, if someone goes beyond 2019 and they activate an opportunity fund, they're going to just – still be on the hook for a portion of their capital gains tax. The longer they go, the less benefit they're going to get. Is that essentially true? Well, yes and no. So um, so I, I don't see 2019 as being this like watermark year that other folks see it as. Because I think that most people are in this program for the 10-year hold. And the 10-year hold benefit, the back-end benefit, happens if you invest in 2019 or 2027, no matter when you invest, before the program expires. But... Uh, but, but, but for those that do have big gain events, that have a lot of zeros behind that gain, they're going to really appreciate that 5% difference between what happens if they invest in 2019 versus, you know, 2020 or 2021 in terms of that front end, I need to, you know, how much I save on my initial capital gains tax bill when I pay it in 2026. How do you want people to contact you and, and why? How can you serve other folks and, and why did you make the time to come on this podcast? My job security depends upon this program uh, succeeding long-term, right? Uh, what we're doing in Alabama needs to be replicated in other places if we want to show massive success in this program across the U.S. We don't see other efforts like ours popping up around the country as competition. We see it as collab- opportunities for collaboration and for growing this program. So I uh, would encourage anyone who wants to get involved in our ecosystem to reach out through our website, opportunityalabama.com. Uh, and, and would love to kind of talk with you individually uh, and, and get you plugged in however we can. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day.